Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 90, and I'm your host, Nick Ortego. Some Mississippi colleges have developed a program to put teachers as young as 20 in the classroom, and an Arkansas legislator proposes cutting lunch funding from schools that struggle to improve their reading skills. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, we're talking about how to coach an overwhelmed teacher. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortego here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire, Lissa Pruitt. Lissa, how you doing? I'm great. Is Still the, struggling. The voice. We're like on week three. What is the deal? <laughs> you know, it's funny that people say to me like, oh, I really like your voice like this. It's really sexy. Like who says that a raspy voice is better it, than a... That's kind of like how people think you're smarter if you wear glasses. Like I don't see yeah. well, so I'm smarter. Like it makes no sense. But... There is a deep discussion there. We need to like talk to a sociologist <laughs> or a psychologist or whatever. Like, what is it about those things yeah. that amplify smartness or sexiness or whatever? Yeah. I don't, I know. don't know. Deep thoughts. Because I feel like I sound like I've smoked a pack of cigarettes and that's not attractive. <laughs> yeah, really? Well, I'm going to try not to make you talk too much. So we'll just jump right into the uh, teacher's lounge. Pretty interesting local discussion, right? Yes. Actually, we were talking about this today. It's cool. Okay, so... Here in Mississippi, they've just uh, there's a our local university is the University of Southern Mississippi, right? But there are a lot of really great community colleges around our area, which I'm sure is how it is all over the nation. Mm-hmm. So, um, Gulf Coast Community College has just signed an agreement with the University of Southern Mississippi to allow. We have talked about this before, where juniors and seniors in high school and en- dual enroll mm-hmm. through a junior college, and they can get an associate's degree by the time they graduate high school. We've talked about this on this podcast before. So you have kids that are graduating high school, getting their high school diploma, but they're also getting the associate's degree. Well, now the University of Southern Mississippi has joined with Gulf Coast Community College to say, okay, if they do that, then we, and they want to go into the education program that we offer, they will immediately go into our teacher program and can student teach and everything and be graduating with a teacher degree basically at the end of their sophomore year of so college. Like by as age 20. 20. Right. Wow. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let me let me say a few things and then you can tell me where I'm wrong. One, first, we try not to be a homer on the show. What I mean by that is we try not to like just grab stories that are in our backyard. But this one I feel like does have implications around the country. So yeah, I was it's like, gonna, this, it's probably happening everywhere. Right. And and so it really kind of grabbed my attention. So it's just a coincidence that it's that it's nearby us. But part of me likes the idea of, you know, all right, great. This is gonna allow to get more teachers into the system and faster, uh, so it can help with the teacher shortage. But the other part of me is like should we have teachers at age 20? And surely they're not going to stick them in a high school. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. That's what I think about. Like 20-year-olds teaching 18-year-olds. Like, 
It, it, that's well, yeah, I mean, yes, they, they have to choose. I mean, they, they're still allowed. They, they say that they are allowed to, to step right in as the same as a student that's been going to Southern Miss for their freshman and sophomore year. Um, they have to choose an area just like in our, you know, state, you have to choose, you know, K through four, four through eight, you know, or something like that. In high school, back in my day, back in my day, we were just K through eight. But now they kind of have broken it down into areas. They also can do special education Mm -hmm. because there's a huge shortage, of course, in special education also. They say that the reason they're doing this is because Mississippi, along with every other state in our great country, is experiencing major teacher shortages. And so... They say that 40%, I believe it was 40% in the last five years, less people seeking a degree in education in at wow. Southern Miss. So I guess and the so idea of that fast saying, track. Yeah, right. So yeah. they're saying, well, we're just going to dangle the carrot. We're going to make it a little more interesting of, you know what? Yeah, college is expensive. It absolutely is. And some people are deciding is college worth it or not there are a lot there's a lot of talk about that Mm -hmm. you know of is college for everyone so they're saying hey listen if you could just give us two years you can have your your teaching degree as long as you did the two years of the collegiate academy your junior and senior year now is is that on top of your typical junior and senior year in high school or is it instead of so it would definitely be some like my son right now is a senior and he's enrolled through a local junior college, but at his high school, he takes college algebra and college English, mm-hmm. you know, one-on-one. Um, so that teacher belongs to the high school, but has the endorsement to be a dual enrollment teacher. Mm. So your question is, is it the exact same course that they would take at... No, I guess university. it's more of, are they going to miss something in high school in order to do this? So, no, okay. because a lot of the same, a lot of the coursework, like college algebra and college English and um, art appreciation, right. you know, some of those uh, biology, you know, those things can be taught at a high school by a teacher that is certified to do both. And so you're kind of, you know, maybe those children wouldn't be taking calculus, you know, or pre-calculus, right. but they wouldn't have needed that for their degree plan anyway. Right. So, so whereas some of their friends may be taking biochemistry, mm-hmm. they would be taking college biology. Um, so they're still taking sciences. They're just taking and dual enrollment, getting credit on a fast track, mm-hmm. but that definitely means they're going to be shot out of that cannon faster right. into the education. I mean, everyone talks about how new teachers are fired out of a cannon, you know, like that first year is you're just holding on. You know, we have two brand new teachers at my school and I just always look at them with just eyes of love because they look exhausted. I mean, completely exhausted and they probably are, you know, mm-hmm. but now you take that at age of 20, you know, so so their peers are doing keg stands, you know, back <laughs> right. at spring parties. Right. And they're like, you know, Have a real handling. Job. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, so let me ask you, like, would you have been a better teacher at 22 than you would have at 20 if you had the proper schooling? Is there a difference? 
on a maturity level, maybe? If we're just talking about me, uh, you might I be was a, a very, yeah. very mature 20, 21 year old. Yeah. So it would not have, I would have been just fine. But I know you've been around um, some young teachers. Yeah. You've had close friends that are young teachers. Yes. What are your thoughts? Um, you don't have to say names, but, but you're going to judge them. Here's what I have to say. If it's not for everyone and it, people that have worked their way through college, they worked and went to school. Mm-hmm. Those people are going to have no trouble. If, if anything, it's going to be better for them. They're going to be like, finally, I've arrived. You know, right. now I get to do what I'm supposed to do and I'm paid for it and I'm not juggling all these different hats. And they have a strong work ethic and they're going to do great. Right. But the kids whose parents bankrolled them for that freshman and sophomore year yeah. and they didn't work and they didn't really have to do anything but go to class, they're going to struggle more than a new teacher would struggle. But, and let's keep in mind that they're probably not going to be hired by the best of the best school districts that have 40 applicants for one opening. Yeah, like I mean, my school, you yeah, know, right. we've got one opening and there's right. 40 people that were being interviewed, you know, wow. Right. But there are schools out there that have five openings and they've only got one person applying. So most likely these young teachers are going to be going into some need areas, which right. is even tougher, but maybe, maybe it'll all work out. I, I get it that we have a shortage, you know, clearly we need to pay our teachers more, you know, some of these other ways around it. I think junior colleges are realizing, or I think, excuse me, I think universities are realizing that some people are saying, maybe I don't need a college degree. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go to a junior college. So I think it's smart for the universities to pair up to say, just give us two years. Right. You know, um, I think junior colleges have a very safe future for sure. A very stable future. Right. But I also think that the answer is not to fast track people into the pipeline. You know, I think it is. The answer is to pay teachers what you should pay them. And everybody's, you know, you're hearing news of people paying more here and there, but not Mississippi. I mean, it's it's certainly taking a fight, and and I would honestly say if if I knew teachers started at fifty thousand dollars rather than let's say thirty thousand dollars, I would be more likely to want to be a teacher. And I know that's that's not necessarily you shouldn't be motivated by money, but when you're picking between a few different career paths, you know, um, I it think starts I'd, I'd in be the motivated. home. It yeah. starts in the home. It starts with the parents saying to the child, "Are you sure you want to be a teacher? I think you need to really look at how much they make." So let's just play a game. You have this much money a month. Mm-hmm. And let's look at that. You all, oh, you like that apartment? Okay, let's look and see how much that apartment is. Okay, now you have this much money a month because you just paid for your apartment. Oh, you need a car? Okay, well, let's look at an average car note. So I think it starts in the home. Yeah, and parents are influential parents like that. Are, yeah. Of course, they want their children to be self-sufficient. So right. they say to their children, let's really think about, are you sure you want to do this? Now, if, yeah, if it's a little more luxurious to only do two years of college instead of the full four and you can save money there. Um, but I think they've got to up the pay. Yeah. End of story. End of story. So moving on then. <laughs> um, I've got one uh, for you. This one got my blood boiling. Um, Arkansas legislator, and we've talked about this, how these legislators in January, this always happens, February, yes. they, they, pat, they put up these laws, but this one rubbed me the wrong way. This Arkansas legislator proposes cutting lunch funding from schools that struggle to improve reading skills. And I just don't see the correlation between the two. I get it. Like you want to motivate schools to improve their reading school skills, 
but why would you cut lunch funding to make that happen? Why? I don't even understand the correlation. That's that, that's just it. And and I go back to <laughs> Maslow's, what is it, like Maslow's pyramid of, of, you know, things that you actually have to have before you can really, like, focus to improve yourself. And, like, the most basic one is, like, shelter and food. Right. And, and here we are, like, basically this, this lawmaker saying, let's cut their funding to motivate the school. But what you end up doing is you take food away from kids that really need it and need that food to learn before, you know, they need to have a full stomach before they start to learn. And I mean, am I, am I getting upset about nothing or are you on the same page with me? Disgusting. I mean, plus, I mean, like then, then they're putting the burden on the school then to take that lunch away from a child that has, you know, no money in their account to say, no, don't serve them. Don't serve them because we don't have any money. Don't serve them. I, I don't <laughs> see this this bill making it, but um, just the fact that it was an idea is, is infuriating. But uh, I'll tell you what the, the lawmaker said, and I'll give you a little bit of background. It's um, Representative Alan Clark out of Lonesdale, Arkansas, Republican. And um, he actually did make a statement once the story hit because like, the local news picked it up and and he's like, well, let me let me clarify. Ooh, let me clarify <laughs> yeah. what I meant to say, which and, was none of it. <laughs> and he said, um, I'll try to keep it short, but he says, uh, talking about like their scores, they're not great, but he says, uh, my bill would require that a school district improve their reading proficiency by .0001 every two years. So not much, but he says, in most businesses, I would be laughed at for suggesting such a small goal. But sadly, many, many educators act like I have asked them to storm the beaches at Normandy, improve just 0001 every two years. Basically, the standard is just don't go backwards, which I get. Like, I think you should motivate schools to improve in reading. But again, why tie that to lunch funding? That's right. what's disgusting. Right, because that's hurting a child. Right. That is so weird. And, and I, there's other things. Like, surely, I mean athletic funding or I don't know I mean just something something else besides lunch I don't know infuriated me yeah I'm sure I'm sure a lot of people were like what <laughs> right well are you um, ready for the bright idea yes we are talking about how you can coach overwhelmed teachers our guest in today's Bright Idea segment has coached thousands of educators around the U.S. and abroad. Elena Aguilar is the founder and president of Bright Morning, and she's a regular contributor to Edutopia and Ed Week Teacher. She recently published an article that grabbed my attention titled, How to Coach an Overwhelmed Teacher, and she has been kind enough to discuss that with us today. Elena, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I, when I hear the title that, that you wrote, it's How to Coach an Overwhelmed Teacher, I initially, my mind goes to, this is something that principals will do with teachers. But as, as I started thinking about it a little bit more, really, this could happen between colleagues or maybe a veteran teacher coaching a new teacher. Is that right? Sure, definitely. I think that it's also, um, I often think I coach myself. And so many of these strategies and ideas I keep in my back pocket for the moments when I feel overwhelmed. You, you know, actually, yeah, I've had a situation where, where I was feeling overwhelmed and I was reading through your stuff and it w didn't even have to do with teaching. And I was applying some of what I was reading in this article just to my own life. So yeah, it is very valuable in that way. Um, so, right. so what I really want to do is kind of break down how you divide things up in coaching a teacher that may be overwhelmed. And you really start by breaking down what it means to be overwhelmed, like the actual word over overwhelmed, correct? Mm -hmm. Right. 
So it's interesting because psychologists have created some really useful resources to help us understand emotions. And they categorize emotions into what they call emotion families. And so, for example, anger and frustration is um, a reflection of anger, sort of a degree of anger. And they talk about sadness and shame and these big buckets. And in any of those resources, when you scan through the words for emotions, you won't actually see overwhelmed or stressed because those are what psychologists call an emotional state and not necessarily emotion. And they cut across emotion families, which is is most important to understand or what's most useful about that is to understand that overwhelm is comprised of a whole bunch of feelings. And that's why sometimes it feels overwhelmed, can feel overwhelming because it can be sadness and fear and anger and shame. And it can be all of these feelings kind of mixed together. You know, you actually link to um, a page on your website, which is um, brightmorningteam.com. And I'm going to put this link there. But there's a page that you can dive a little deeper into. And it looks like you've, you've broken it down to, I guess, eight core emotions. But then there's, I mean, hundreds of words that kind of fall under each category of those core emotions. Like, For example, you have fear, and then that's a core emotion. But then you might be feeling jumpy, nervous, panic, scared, shocked, and so forth. Um, why is it important to kind of pinpoint the the core emotion that you're feeling why have to narrow that down so that resource is one that i use all the time in coaching but i also use it for myself i use it with my son um, because it helps us to take the first step in responding to any intense emotion, which is to understand it a little bit more and to be able to break down its components and to see the shades of it. And so often when someone's experiencing a strong emotion or they're talking about something that had happened, I'll pull out that document and I'll say, just go through this and circle the words that reflect how you felt. And what that does in that moment um, is actually one of the most critical things that can happen, which is it gives us some language to describe the experience. And when it gives us language, it helps us to have a really healthy kind of um, detachment or distance from the actual experience. It kind of pulls us out just enough so that then we can take the next steps, which are really getting curious about what happened, trying to understand what happened. But often when we're experiencing intense emotion, we're sort of so in it and um, swirling around in it that we can't take the next steps to, to unpack it. So that's how that tool can be really useful. And you were describing, you know, circling these words. That that is the first step. So, so if you have an overwhelmed teacher, maybe a colleague, and and you can see that that teacher's just, you know, they're up up to here with it. And um, you say you you would suggest either pulling out that sheet and saying, you know, which category do you fall in? Let's circle some of these words. Or if you don't have a sheet like that, I guess maybe you could you you suggest describing your emotion as a color. Yeah, I mean, what we want to first do, like the first step, is to have to be able to to name the experience 
experience, name the emotion, describe it. And so sometimes if you don't, a lot of times people will say, I don't even know how to describe it. Like, I don't even know what I was feeling. And that's when you can say, you know, well, if it was a color, what color might it be? And people say like red, but then there was like specks of green and flashes of yellow. And that's great because they're starting to be able to put some language and some concepts to it. Uh, you know, you could ask them, where in your body did you feel those emotions? Where, um, you know, what what kind of weather would it be like? Any kind of analogy or metaphor? Again, the first step is to just be able to put some language to it, which actually helps us feel calmer because then, again, we're sort of stepping. It's almost like if we're in a storm and we can put up an umbrella, then we can sort of look out and see what's there rather than just being soaked and drenched by it. I know you've been coaching teachers for several years, but I mean, you actually have also a lot more years in the classroom as well. I mean, did you see a lot of teachers, colleagues that that would find themselves in this position? Definitely. And I would also add students too. you know, all of these strategies you can use with kids when they're overwhelmed and they are experiencing intense emotions or they shut down. And so sort of as you said in the opening, these are strategies for engaging with emotions and learning from emotions and every human being experiences emotions. So whether it's, you know, your child, your student, your colleague, um, your partner, these are, these are resources that are useful. So, so step two, um, you list as recalling previous experiences. And does that mean just anything where you felt overwhelmed? Right. So you can ask somebody something like, do you, you know, can you recall another time when you felt this uh, sort of soup of emotions or intensity or this, these kind of experiences? Um, And one thing that can happen when you ask them about that is that it can help them then start to recall how they managed that experience, how they responded to it. But it also reminds them that the emotional state won't last forever. So when someone's in a, in a sort of moment when they're caught by these unpleasant emotional experiences, and then if they're receptive and you can, re, you, you know, you can ask them, can you recall another time when you felt like this or similar? Um, part of what happens is they go like, right, okay, this won't last forever. This isn't permanent. And so really, then you say step three is is kind of to recognize, I guess, I don't know if recognize is the right word, but but you say that being overwhelmed can create paralysis. I mean, you, you almost probably can be like, I can't do anything. I can't grade any papers. I can't focus on my next lesson. Um, so so you try to find a reason to, to work beyond that. Right. Or to, again, when you're asking them to recall a previous instance when they felt like that, um, it helps them. That that feeling of paralysis is one that's like, this is never going to change. I'm never going to get out of this. And so recalling a previous incident helps them remember um, that these emotional states pass. And that can kind of, you know, at least it's like there's a light at the end of this tunnel of suffering right now. So, so next we need to identify... A, a step to take to get beyond that, right? Right. And and actually these, um, I call them five tips for coaching overwhelm because they could be sequential steps or you might bounce around depending on okay, what someone's experiencing. Um, and one of the steps is to have the other person m- name or identify one 
little next step that they could take that's really small and manageable and doable that might help them uh, sort of get out of this really uncomfortable place they're in. And so, but what's really important is that the other person identifies that step because when they're feeling really overwhelmed, they're also feeling really disempowered, right? If you think about feeling overwhelmed, uh, you know, an image that comes to my mind is sort of like you're crumpled on the floor of your classroom and you're just looking out at the stacks of things that need to be done and cleaned and organized. And it's just like you're kind of crumpled into a corner on the floor and you have to be able to say like, okay, if I just you know, toss out the moldy remnants of that sign experiments experiment from a month ago. If I can just toss that in the trash, that'll be one good next step. Um, but the person who's overwhelmed has to identify it because in identifying that step, they'll feel better just in that moment. Which kind of leads me to another point you make. You talk about the importance of listening. Um, I mean, from a percentage standpoint, if you're coaching somebody, how much do you is you listening and how much is them talking? That's a great question. Um, you know, we all talk too much. We just do. I think one of my top tips for coaches is basically like, just stop talking and see what happens. Like get to a place where you're asking, see what happens if you really challenge yourself to go into a conversation and speak as little as possible. And so you can say things like, tell me more about that tell me more, what else is coming up? And it's amazing how when you give people that space, they can often talk through their own problems or their own suffering. And I think, you know, next time, next time you're in a, in a, a situation which you're feeling strong emotions, just pay attention to how others respond and, and notice what it's like when people listen to you and give you that space to talk through what's going on for you. It's really powerful and and um, underused. And so we don't have to solve other people's problems. We don't have to fix things. What most of us really, truly want is to be heard and to experience empathy. I think you're right about that. And and so you say after that, you, you kind of set up a, a plan for action as you're kind of wrapping things up. Can you describe to me, like, let's just say you had an overwhelmed teacher um, who, you know, was having trouble um, just with her job in general, but she has a whole stack of work to do. I mean, what would that plan for action look like, do you think? It would, what's critical to the plan, again, is that that teacher identifies what it is that she might do. And it doesn't mean that as a coach or a colleague, you can't make suggestions because sometimes, you know, when you're overwhelmed, you just kind of can't think of what to do. But ultimately, the overwhelmed person has to choose. And it could be something as little as like, okay, my next step is to get a good night's sleep. And then tomorrow to I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask my colleague or my friend to help me figure out how to tackle the mess in my classroom. Or it could be like, you've got 150 essays to grade. And the first step could be, I'm going to look at my calendar for the next week. And I'm going to see where I can block out the time to 
to start working on these. Or it could be, you know, sitting here on the floor, I'm going to grab two of those essays and I'm going to read them while I'm sitting here. Um, so it's a small step. It's a manageable step. Part of what's important in that step is that it galvanizes the overwhelmed person to feel like, okay, I can do this. I can get back into a place of action. And if you're in a coaching session or if you're a principal sort of supporting a teacher, it's really important that the session ends with one step because we do want to be heard, we want empathy, and we want to feel like I can do something about this. And that um, in order to feel that often, we need to have sort of a, a clear and concrete step. I know you've been in a position to monitor educators for a while. And do you think that it's getting harder? Do you see that teachers are more stressed, more pressure, or is it kind of always been the same? I think it's definitely harder. And I think there's definitely more stress and pressure. Um, for so many reasons, teachers are under so much pressure to support the needs of students. Student needs are extensive. And in some ways, just because of the larger sociopolitical situation in our country, um, and economic situation, they get harder and harder every year. Funding for schools is uh, going down pretty much across the country. Um, cost of living is rising. I live in Oakland, California, and teachers are out on strike right now, um, demanding higher salary, lower class size. The conditions in which educators are working are really challenging, and I only see them getting harder. It, you know, it's, it's off subject, but but we've talked about on this show a lot um, places with high cost of living like the area that you're in in Oakland. And, and we kind of wonder, how do teachers even afford to have a place to live working on a teacher's salary? I mean, do you, does that a, a major problem, a major discussion in your area? You know, it really is. And it's actually private schools and public schools. There's a public school, a private school that I work with where they are trying to raise teacher salaries basically to about 150000 a year because the turnover rate is so high and we can't keep teachers in the area. And this is a private school that has um, tremendous resources and even with really high salaries and, and really relatively great conditions, you know, teaching classes of 13, 15 kids, we can't keep teachers um, the cost of living is just so high in this area. And so it, it really is a unique challenge. And then we have districts and, and schools with students who really deserve the very best, most experienced teachers. So it's um, this is a structural inequity that really needs to be addressed. Um, I know this this article that you wrote about um, coaching an overwhelmed teacher is kind of part of a series. I think you also um, wrote another one about coaching a cranky teacher. Are, are there others to come? Yes. In fact, the latest uh, one has come out, and that's about coaching a perfectionist teacher. Ah, and uh, yeah, that one it was so there was so much to say. I had to break it into three into a series of three posts, which are all out now. And there's just um, these, this series is really all about coaching emotions. And that's just something that we don't talk about much. We don't get a lot of training or support on. I didn't when I became an instructional coach. 
Um, I didn't get any training or guidance on, well, how do you, you know, what do you do when a teacher's just crying all the time? I just didn't know what to do. Uh, I found this article on Ed Week Teacher. Is that the best place to find all the others or should they go to, to your website? Where does that kind of all end up? It is. Uh, this whole series is being published on, on my Ed Week Teacher blog. Great. Um, if somebody wants to keep up with you elsewhere, are, are you big into Twitter, Instagram? Where do you like to typically hang out? I am very active on Twitter and Instagram with definitely a different tone and flavor on each of those. And it's easiest to find the links by going to my website, which I imagine you'll link, but it's brightmorningteam.com. And that's the easiest place to find the links to all of um, the places on social media that I participate in. And while I've got you here, what, what is kind of the mission of, of Bright Morning? We exist to bring transformative learning practices to schools so that we can create healthy, resilient communities where everyone thrives. And we mean every child and every adult. And it looks like you're, you're a pretty big team for, for a consulting type firm. It looks like you have a lot of people kind of teamed up with you, right? We do. We're a team of 12 and we work across the United States and internationally. We work with public, private, charter schools. Um, we do a lot of workshops and events on a number of different topics. Well, Elena, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Are you ready for our pop quiz? Sure. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Art. Okay. Well, why is that? <laughs> uh, uh, because we need more creativity in the world. We need to uh, expand the way that we engage with our experience. I think we need to tap into the part of ourselves that is... Um, that we haven't explored enough, which is our creativity and our way of communicating through other modalities. We do a lot of thinking in our heads. And I think we need to learn how to learn and to share stories and to communicate with our bodies, with images, with song, with movement. I think that would ultimately bring us closer together as a species. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? How to respond to and engage with emotions, how to get curious, how to ask questions, how to open our heart, how to respond to our own fears, um, how to heal from trauma, both our nation's collective traumas and our individual traumas. What does every child deserve? Every child deserves to be loved and cared for and to belong to a community. And every child deserves to know how to read and think critically and access all the core content and curriculum that is out there. What is the biggest challenge for today's educators? The biggest challenge for today's educators might be fear. We need to access our courage. We need to figure out how to stand up and demand the changes that our students deserve. And those include changes in the funding structures to schools. They include changes in content and curriculum. They include changes in how teachers are talked about and treated and how schools are 
organized and run. And I think the hardest thing is that every time we think about needing to make those changes or needing to say something, we encounter our own fear. What's the best gift to give an educator? Ooh, the best gift to give an educator, probably empathy, followed by a salary raise. (laughs) Which teacher changed your life? Well, that would be an informal teacher, and that would have been my mother, because the teachers I had K-12 were um, somewhere in between immemorable and damaging. And the only reason I learned anything in school, I think, is because when I came home, my mother talked to me about books and ideas and what was going on with the world. And she talked to me about what I was writing, and she gave me feedback on what I was writing, and she encouraged me when teachers in school did not. And last question, pen or pencil? Pen. All right, Elena Aguilar, we appreciate you taking the time. And uh, if anyone wants to check out the uh, links to her articles, of course, you can check that out on the uh, classdismisspodcast.com website. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you. So if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismisspodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button. And we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismisspodcast or on Twitter. Just search for us by typing in Class Dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ward. To go and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.